Welcome back to Women vs. Hollywood, the podcast that explores the fall and rise of women in film. I'm your host, Helen O'Hara. I'm a film critic and author of the book of the same name as this podcast. So in today's episode, we're going to be looking at the gender pay gap in the film industry. Whether we're talking about actors, directors or writers, women working in Hollywood are consistently paid less than their male peers. For example, between June 2018 and June 2019, the top 10 highest paid actresses in Hollywood made a total of $315 million, which is not a bad amount of money. But the total earnings of the top 10 highest paid men at the same period came to nearly $600 million. So we're going to be asking today why this huge gender pay gap exists, how it affects women across the film industry, and what needs to be done to make equal pay a reality. Now, to help me answer these questions, because I am not an economist, I spoke to filmmaker and academic Susan Kemp, who is the Programme Director for Film, Exhibition and Curation at the University of Edinburgh. I also talked to actress and writer Jessica Regan, who co-hosts the Best Pick podcast with Tom Solinsky and John Dorney. But first, we'll hear from Dr. Sofia Izquierdo Sanchez, who is a senior lecturer in economics at the University of Huddersfield. She and her colleagues have conducted extensive research into the gender pay gap between male and female stars. So I asked Sofia what her research can tell us about the pay gap in Hollywood. We do have a quite a complete data set uh, in which we look at the gender earning differentials. So we do analyze 267 Hollywood stars in 1,344 movies from 1980 to 2015, actually. Uh, so it's, it's, it's quite long and complete. And well, the aim was to see if uh, these uh, gender differentials that the, all the actresses uh, were claiming and it was in the press, uh, it was actually happening. And not just if it was happening, but if it could be explained or, or not, or it was unexplained. So we do so that uh, in the rough data, there is uh, a gap of, uh, well, I'm going to talk to you just in million dollars. We do find that female stars earn uh, in average per movie 2.2 million dollars less than male. But then we do have a lot of determinants and controls that uh, I can talk to you about later if you want, and that we consider, and they do explain a half of this difference. But still half of this difference leaves us with an unexplained gap of an average of $1.1 million per movie, which is quite large. So what are some of those factors? Is it, is it things like size of role and, and stuff like that? Yes. So we, well, we, we of course, have salaries. They fix because the salaries of actors normally include a fixed portion, which is negotiated, and then a variable portion, which will depend on... Um, performance. And- on, exactly, on performance. And then we do have time shooting in the, within the movie for, by actor an actress, uh, profitability, production budget, and then we have past information about actors, like financial success on previous movies, popularity of these people, awards, previous experience, race, nationality, 
and then in general, many movie and actor characteristics which uh, we think they may be relevant for explaining salaries. So you were able to explain half of it with all of that? Yeah, we were able to explain half of it with all of that. And then the other half, uh, we do observe that is bigger in some characteristics of movies and smaller or inexistent in others. So, for example, let me give you an example. In terms of genre, we find that the gap is enormous, it's very big for action movies, while it is far less evidence for other genres. However, within those other genres, it is particularly evident among older stars for 50 and older stars. Okay, but men's careers last longer, don't they, than women's careers? So that's something that, again, is going to... Exactly, yeah. So this is another thing that we argue because uh, we do try to explain why there is this persistent gap and why in action movies and uh, maybe less in other genres or why for 50 or over... The literature, basically, well, not just in, for the Hollywood industry, but for many industries, uh, demonstrates that beauty, for example, brings an earnings premium uh, through much of the labor market. And we think this is especially true in the visual medium of a film. Okay, Probably movie-going public associates beauty with uh, youth for women. And, and so, so we could talk a little bit of a consumer discrimination also here that may be playing against this uh, idea of why we find salary discrimination on 50 and all that. And also why maybe for men it lasts longer the career than for women, yeah. Yeah, because people are willing to cut men a bit of slack for ageing in a way that we maybe don't for women. Less for women, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately. Okay, so, I mean, let's look at some of those kind of the factors that, that play into all of this. I mean, a lot of those can also have potentially sexist roots, I guess, because, you know, things like the size of your role, if we keep telling stories that are focused on men because those have been successful in the past, then there are going to be fewer big roles for women to prove their box office power, I guess, in. Yeah, so, in fact, we do emphasise these two areas uh, of uh, gender and age uh, that they clearly, as you are mentioning, they may reflect... uh, strong social and public preferences. So, for example, right, if we're talking about action movies, the movie going public is going to be associated with action, strength, violence, and uh, all these characteristics that are traditionally associated uh, with males. So we do think like consumer discrimination may generate uh, this differential among action movies. Same, similar, similar idea with the beauty, actually, that I just mentioned a moment ago. We do actually suggest that more research should be done towards showing this link with consumer discrimination because although we argue it, we don't actually show it. It, it is hard to tell. I mean, I'm obviously not an economist, but there's a, you, you're dealing with a lot of different interwoven factors here because, for example, I mean, just observing reality, this is not expertise on my part, but the big action movies that have bigger budgets also tend to get, as a general rule, much bigger marketing budgets. And therefore, more people are aware of them. Maybe more people go to opening weekend and therefore maybe bigger box office, right? So there's there's kind of knock-on effects just to budget size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, the issue when you say like uh, it's it may be difficult to identify. Uh, actually, we have to recognize that economists are probably quite poorly equipped to make strong judgments about uh, consumer discrimination, right, in terms of 
well, satisfaction of these consumers uh, by the gender of the firm or the conception of fairness that they may have and so on. So it's, it's quite difficult uh, to show these things, yeah. What can we change then? What can we do about this? What, what things need to, to shift, do you think? I think the film industry has something in its favour compared to other industries because this happens in many industries. I think the film industry has lots of media attention. It's an industry which is very influential, where the, act, where the female actors have a voice to raise these issues. And I think, first of all, it's important that people, the industry, but also people are aware of these things, that they happen. Uh, In the case, more specifically, of the film industry, maybe that the agents that negotiate the salaries are aware of this in the industry, and then the negotiations are public also early on. So uh, it is... uh, transparent right what what they are negotiating the salaries on and everything because it seems like in many cases they were aware of the salaries after the film uh, was shot or after has passed which is slightly strange in that sense but I think making the public aware and the industry is already an important step and hopefully (laughs) that could help. Yeah I mean the, the, the disturbing thing you hear sometimes is when agents actually represent both parties in in a film deal and negotiate completely different deals for their women and men, male clients. You know, it's uh, it can be a very inconsistent job, let's say. Exactly. Yeah, so it's important that you are aware of this. And then here, I, obviously, we don't have... This is very private information, which we couldn't get, like the agent's negotiation. So we don't know if the, the start point of the negotiation was very low for ones and very high for the others. And so this will make, make a difference, which it will be unfair anyway. <laughs> okay, but... The fact that agents negotiating, in fact, uh, we also... Because you know there is this literature in which it says that women are more risk-adverse and they push less when negotiating salaries. But, you know, in fact, the fact that there are agents negotiating in the film industry should actually clear up this problem. (laughs) And I've, I've seen some studies suggesting that women don't negotiate less than men, they just get less results from those negotiations, that bosses are more hostile to negotiation by women than they are by men. Yeah, many stories about that. Uh, in any case, it's unfair. And the Oscar goes to Patricia Arquette Boyhood. Thank you to the Academy, to my beautiful, powerful nominees, to every woman who gave birth, to every taxpayer and citizen of this nation. We have fought for everybody else's equal rights. It's our time to have wage equality once and for all and equal rights for women in the United States of America. That was, of course, Jared Leto presenting Patricia Arquette with the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for her performance in Boyhood at the 2015 Oscars ceremony and the barnstorming speech that she gave at that time. Now, Patricia Arquette's speech gained a lot of media attention in the days after the Oscars, but unfortunately, six years later, we still have exactly the same amount of work to do to make wage equality a reality. A lot of the obstacles that women face when they're fighting for equal pay are deeply ingrained, not just in the film industry, but in society as a whole, because we still place a higher value on work that is considered men's work than we do on work that's done by women. So I asked filmmaker and academic Susan Kemp why the gender pay gap exists and how that affects women in the film industry. 
it's about how we value ourselves and how we're taught to value ourselves. So the ability to value ourselves is directly related to then how society values us, in which is direct relation to then how how much money we can command or how much money we can negotiate. And when you grow up in Scotland, there's this expression called uh, I kent your father, which is translates as I knew your father, which is essentially saying don't get up yourself. And this is about a sort of Presbyterian religious connotation, which is don't pride, false pride, pride, it's, it's a bad thing. And that permeates many cultures. So if you take that you've got that sort of religious idea that, that pride is a sin, and then you add it to society's expectations about women, you've got a double whammy about how to value yourselves. And then when you go into a sort of male-dominated field like film, that's a triple whammy about where that world... You have to prove yourself constantly. And, you know, when I started out 25 years ago or whatever, um, I went to film school. It was a young course. I think it'd been going for two years before I started. And there would only been men on the course before. I was the first one amongst the first intake of women. And those men in the previous course, they really resented us being there. They didn't really believe that we had the technical skills to be able to do the course. And they made us sit special tests to take out equipment because uh, they controlled the equipment. I, look, I accepted it then, but now I look back on it and think, oh, my God. But but this is a world I, I accepted this because society told me that a woman trying thinking the show for herself as a director is really pushing it, you know. And so, you you know, it takes a long time to a get the role as a director believe in yourself and then I I recognised that I had skill and you know when you first start directing the DOP wants to direct for you as a woman because they don't think you can direct and so you have to sort of quietly manage that because you can't get into any sort of conflict because then you're labelled difficult so you have to carefully manage these things and I recognised that the talent I had in the edit is something a DOP doesn't have or whatever and it allows me to sort of quietly take control in a way but that takes a lot of time and it's only once you get to that point do you think and then even then you're not valued so there's a time after I don't know about a long career in the BBC when I'd been working as a director producer director series producer there was a director who'd been given 60 minutes to direct and he was struggling because he hadn't done any he hadn't done two minutes he hadn't done five minutes and it's you know I don't know why they gave him 60 minutes but it, he failed and they got me in and I thought, oh, they were getting me in to sort of help him out because I'm good at the edit. But actually, no, they wanted me to tidy up after him around archive organisation. And I just was like, you know what? No. Nah. And that was the first steps to me leaving the BBC because I just thought, how can I possibly negotiate in that environment that thinks that even though I'm at series producer level, my skill is in tidying up after a director who's failing, a male director who's failing, rather than giving me opportunities to develop my own creativity. And that's in the TV world that I was operating in. Film was even more difficult. But if you take ex extrapolate from that what we're dealing with, it's about value. And until we correct that, and we can't go, you know, it's great. The, the tools that are there to sort of assert that pay should be equal are really good. Because what they do is make women go, actually, you know what? I should be valued more. And they move away from this other factor of I shouldn't be proud and I and I can't your favor type mentality. And we can see that happening in when the fees are published and women are going, you know what? And then you have to have the power to walk away. You know, if you're not willing to not be valued correctly, you have to be able to walk away. And that's the trouble is then you'll be replaced with someone who's willing to take that. So it's a lot as a complicated system of interacting forces, all of which need to shift and change. As we continue to exist in a patriarchy, we can, and as we can see in this current climate, the change that's happened is causing, a, you know, an earthquake of impact. You know, we can see with Trumpism, with the sort of response to 
all sorts of things that there is a sort of anger and resentment about the change, those those shifting balances, and that's creating a situation where it's even harder, you know, to keep pushing at it. And of course, we should keep in mind that the problem of wage inequality is intersectional. The issue is magnified hundredfold sometimes for trans women, for disabled women and for women of colour, who also, of course, face higher barriers in getting into the industry in the first place. Back in the studio era, black actors were paid significantly less than their white counterparts as a matter of course. Actors like Harry McDaniel and Dorothy Dandridge were notable exceptions who managed to fight their way to the top of the wage pyramid or near it. And Dandridge earned a salary of $125,000 a film in her contract with 20th Century Fox, which was a landmark for a black performer. But the colour barrier was still very, very much in place and the opportunities that she had to make those films were still extremely limited compared to her white co-stars. This lack of opportunity still exists for black women in Hollywood. In 2018, Viola Davis noted that although her career is comparable in terms of awards and talent to people like Meryl Streep, Julianne Moore and Sigourney Weaver, she is nowhere near them when it comes to money and job opportunities. In fact, her net worth of about $12 million is less than a quarter of Julianne Moore's estimated $50 million and Meryl Streep is estimated at $150 million, which is, of course, even more out of reach. But when women and other marginalised groups try to fight for better pay and try to correct these inequalities, they often risk getting labelled as difficult, which can, in turn, further make it more difficult for them to get the opportunities in the first place. So I asked Susan Kemp whether this is still a danger to women's careers in film. Absolutely. I mean, I've been labelled difficult for for a slight disagreement. I've been labelled difficult for all sorts of things, which I find very upsetting at the time. I burst into tears when I was told I was difficult because I, I didn't understand how a disagreement could label you as difficult. It's appalling that that's the case. Whereas men who are arseholes are not labelled difficult at all. It's a real problem. And it is what goes back to that value. Society expects us to be kind, to be nice, and we consistently fall into that trap, not realising that disagreement doesn't mean being unkind. Disagreement isn't in its very status being unkind. But I think that this is where we fall prey to these contrasting expectations of women that we're not supposed to be asking for our own thing. We're supposed to be grateful for whatever we're given. And this is where the, that value system that you mentioned comes in. It's basically, I mean, I'd like to hear what you think on this, but it seems to me that if you're paid less and you're valued less, it's because they think you aren't as important. And you then, and they're trying to make sure on some level, they're trying to make sure that you won't become as important. Yeah. I mean, if you think, you know, to my mother's generation couldn't get a mortgage without a male guarantor. And this reflects a society which is about the main breadwinner has been perceived to be male in a patriarch cycle. That's what it is. And we're coming from that. We're still in that system. The thing we haven't addressed in this is that as these changes happen, the expectations on men changes too. So instead of that sort of expectation of life offering them a certain way to earn a living and, and provide, because that's what society does, it's become increasingly challenging. So men who might have expected to get, go into into relatively good jobs without much difficulty are finding themselves in, in jobs that previously would have been seen as women's work. And so there is a problem, there's a fractiousness developing about that, which is if we don't resolve 
that element? How can we resolve the other element? If we only isolate it as being an issue of women, we continue to ghettoize that, continue to disaggregate women from the issues and make them responsible for the issues rather than society being responsible for the issues. And so patriarchal society is about a society. It's not about women versus men. It's about society and how society functions. And I think that's what, you know, women are are working away and vulnerable groups are working away generally and this is increasing is that vulnerable groups are working away generally at trying to make sure that that power and value system is rectified but at the moment it's only their responsibility it's not me it's not the responsibility of, of men on any point in any discussion and that needs to change I also spoke to the Best Pit co-host and working actress Jessica Regan about the gender pay gap and I asked her whether she had any personal experience of wage inequality and whether she thinks things might be beginning to improve. I was up for a, kind of a, a guest part on a TV show and it was it was like a nice, it was a nice guest part, you know, it was a storyline part and it would have entailed about two weeks filming. And my agent came back to me with an offer and was like, this is the offer. And I was like, oh, it's not quite as much as I would have thought. And he said, and he said at the time, he was my agent at the time. And I've been very lucky. I've always had great representation. I've always had, you know, I'm, I'm with a great agent. I've had a great agent. Like I'm, and I, I shudder to think what it's like for people who don't have those protections. But my agent at the time said, um, you don't massively need this on your CV. So how would you feel if we just did this as a test case to you'll walk away if you don't get what you want? And I was like, okay, yeah, I mean, I've never done that before in my life. But yeah, as a test case, because, you know, it was it wasn't would have been a lovely couple of weeks filming. And he said, the reason I'm so angry is because a male client of mine was offered the exact same kind of like like a few weeks ago. It was the exact same setup, the same show, the same casting directors and the same size role. And he was he he doesn't have your profile. He doesn't have your experience. He doesn't have your awards. And he was offered twice what you've been offered. Whoa. Double. Ouch. So my agent was like, uh, how, you know, do you want to go all the way? And I was, you know, one of those rare times where I was like, okay, um, okay, I could really use the money either way, but some things are more important. And, you know, uh, my, my agent was able to sort of say to them, they were like, we're, oh, we only offer that to household names. And my, my agent was kind of slightly throwing his own client under the bus, was kind of like, well, let's just say Tom. Um, well, it's interesting because you offer Tom you offer Tom that rate and he hasn't done X, Y, Z. And again, I think it was just this, this, um, this bias is so ingrained, but, but here's where it really comes down to, to casting directors who do a lot of the negotiation, the fees and where it comes down to agents and who would you go to bat for and why would you go to bat for? Because the thing of being afraid to piss people off has also held actors back from maybe getting what they deserve. But that's why you have an agent, right? That's supposed to be what the agent does. Absolutely. But, you know, I, I'm i lucky, like I said, I've I've always had really good representation, but I have heard horror stories from friends who... I had a friend recently who was um, on a TV show and uh, they ended up, her and the cast ended up kind of contributing ideas to the writing. And they sort of said, you know what? I think we need to renegotiate, guys, because... And the age and the majority of the agents agreed, and we're like, let's try and get you a little bit topped up, you know, because uh, this is unfair. And the age, the other agent was like, oh, I don't want to piss these people off, you know. It's like it's your job, <laughs> you know. And they ended up getting getting the money, but she kind of had to persuade her agent to advocate for her. And as in as in all jobs, you know, there's some terrific agents out there, there's some terrific directors out there, there's there's good people everywhere, but there's tricky people everywhere as well. And I I just 
the fear of rocking the boat. Oh, it's real, yeah. And the actor then kind of being a casualty of that. But I think with with, with social media, that is one thing that has helped. Actors are being a bit more vocal about like, guys, can we stop with the 24-hour turnarounds from the self-tapes that's not doing our mental health any good? And just to kind of, you know, like uh, we're often asked to like learn 12 pages at a moment's notice and put ourselves on film, you know. And uh, it's it's wild. It's really, really wild. <laughs> like you go, things have changed before you'd have like a week to prepare for something and meet the person and now it's like turn it around in in in, in a day and you know the quality suffers and I, I don't know how much that's helping people but yeah it's it's about being not afraid to to advocate for yourself but also this not talking about money and and being being an unseemly thing to discuss is another tool of silence to keep us not knowing what we're earning and who's getting what and what's happening but on the crown, Matt Smith was being paid a lot more than Claire Foy, <laughs> who was the queen, you the know? actual and queen. And people were like, yeah. well, he had more profile. It's like, I don't know that he did. I don't know that he did, actually. Claire Foy had fantastic credits behind her before she she did the crown. They'll always find a way. It's like even with the all the money in the world story, lots of I saw lots of articles that were like in in the defense of the agents and it's like this is just more tools of of keeping us down like I'm not buying it fair is fair and this isn't fair and being unafraid to say that as well do women still get labeled as being difficult if they ask for for more money you know was that was that something you were worried about at the time when your agent went to bat for you I wasn't I wasn't because I felt my agent had a really strong case because he was able to literally go, it's my client, like you know what I mean? And that's that's how he knew precisely how much that person had been paid. I think I was labelled uh, fiery at drama school. Um, I'm sure it's such a shock to you. I, I am who I am and I'm always coming from a place of the work. I need to look at myself in the mirror at the end of the day and I need to be true to myself and I won't tolerate abuse, whether it's happening to me or happening to someone else. I will stop things. I will talk about it. You'll get your broadsword out. I will get my bloody broadsword out. But unfortunately, they trained me not to hurt you. So it's not very effective. It's very heavy. I should stop carrying it around. But, you know, you have to live with yourself at the end of the day. I'm not worried about that reputation because I do think my work speaks for itself. And, you know, there's a lot to be said for being able to work well with camera people and know that when it gets to half six can I throw that line over my shoulder so we can get it in a one and you know it's like I know I'm an asset on any set in any rehearsal room and with that comes integrity and with that comes looking after myself and looking after those around me and I'll I'll never apologize and I'll never change for that uh boy Uh, Thank you so much to the Television Academy for this and to the incredible cast and crew who worked so hard to make this TV show, especially you, Sammy Rockwell. I know how hard you worked. Um, I see this as an acknowledgement of what is possible when a woman is trusted to discern her own needs, feels safe enough to voice them, and respected enough that they'll be heard. When I asked for more dance classes, I heard yes. More voice lessons, yes. A different wig, a pair of fake teeth not made out of rubber, yes. (laughs) And all of these things, they require effort and they cost more money, but my bosses never presumed to know better than I did about what I needed in order to do my job and honor Gwen Verdon. And so I want to say thank you so much to FX and to Fox 21 Studios for supporting me completely and for paying me equally because they understood. (laughs) 
because they understood that when you put value into a person, it empowers that person to get in touch with their own inherent value. And then where do they put that value? They put it into their work. And so the next time a woman, and especially a woman of color, because she stands to make 52 cents on the dollar compared to her white male counterpart, tells you what she needs in order to do her job. Listen to her. Believe her. Because one day she might stand in front of you and say thank you for allowing her to succeed because of her workplace environment and not in spite of it. Thank you. That last clip, of course, was Michelle Williams winning an Emmy at the 2019 ceremony for her role as Gwen Verdun in the FX production Fosse Verdun. Although there is some progress being made, a further complication in the fight for wage equality has emerged, the COVID-19 pandemic. Jessica Regan told me about the effect that that's had on wages in the film industry. I'm concerned that while progress is marching forward, um, I think psychologically for, for society and for the culture, that this will keep us back because you're so lucky to work after the pandemic. There's COVID protocols are expensive. Like these are all going to be things that to bat us around the head with. And I think if you can't afford to make something, I'm sorry, don't make it. Like it's not cool to ask people like, or if you, if you can make something like, can you pay them a decent wage? Otherwise it's exploitation. You know, I'm not saying everyone has to have 1.5 million to give Michelle Williams, but you know, from it, it's kind of amazing the the gap sometimes in like the the actress who was in um, Minari talking about paying for her own accommodation, you know, th- th- things like that. You'd be amazed what you're like. Oh, I'm I'm getting this. Okay, all right. I don't know oh, what. And obviously, lots of us do projects for for the pure love of it, and that's a different thing. You know, where you're like, of course, I'll make your incredible short film. This is a beautiful script, and I'd be delighted to. And but often they're the projects I've gotten treated the most fair on, hilariously, you know, and you kind of go, that's that's not bad for for like, this is a low budget shoot. This is actually really decent. I read on Twitter the other day somebody talking about a big movie or a big TV show, I don't know which, where a star turned up two two hours late, so nothing could be done for those for that that part of the day until the star was ready to go. So that hangover, which I think is what it was, cost about thirty one thousand dollars to the production, and the producers were not worried. Whereas the the previous week they'd let go a production, a writer's assistant, because, well, the writing's done now, so we don't need to keep her on staff and then we can't afford to. So there's there's a sort of double standard in what we're willing to spend money on, maybe as well, in terms of what we value. We're willing to spend it on our stars and what we value, yeah, and not necessarily willing to spend it on people further down the list who are just at the start of their careers and probably in much more need of an extra couple of thousand quid. It would be lovely to see a greater spreading of assets. And I think as well, when you indulge that actor with their two-hour hangover, you're only making a rod for yourself because then that person is getting the message that they there's no consequence to this. So you're going to lose another 30,000 uh, as the shoot goes on. And After next Saturday night. Listen, I'm someone who's had to kind of been like, hey, Jess, some things have moved around because um, so-and-so's late. So uh, you know that you don't have any time to prepare. Are you okay to do those scenes that you're going to do in two weeks? Can you do them now? And yeah, you end up doing them and to keep everything on track. And the slack always gets picked up somewhere. And it's usually by people further down on the call list, to be honest. I don't understand the the tolerance sometimes for 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 crappy behavior because there's there's so many of us, and there's so many of us that are lovely and nice and hardworking and who aren't who are names, you know, and I'm happy to say like the most talented people I've ever worked with are always the nicest. yeah, it's it's strange. i I, I think I wonder if Covid will actually the 
you know, the, the effects of COVID will, will stamp out some of those behaviours because I don't see how people are in a position to just throw away that money. But it would be lovely if there was like investment of talent at the core. Two things I'd really like to see is exactly what you're talking about, but the money finding its way down and, and investing in the, the, that talent coming up. And also like, let's do away with treating assistants like crap and that trope and um talking down to people who get your tea and and all 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 that stuff you know like like that the, the, there's an image of the hollywood assistant where it's almost like it's like almost the, the tech equivalent of the method you earn your stripes by people being vile to you and if you're tough enough you'll stay in this business and it's like all right so i have to so abuse is inherent in my profession and if i don't accept it i'm not cut out for the job why are we swallowing this this is bullshit As ever, when we start to look at and analyse who gets money for doing what, we start to see what we value in society. Yes, the COVID pandemic has been a huge economic problem for very, very many industries. And yes, many of them are struggling and using that as a reason not to pay people a lot of money. But before that, it was the 2008 economic crash. Before that, it was one thing or another thing. There's always a reason not to pay people more. And the fact is that ultimately you're telling people you don't value them as individuals and that you don't value the work that they do. And maybe, I don't know, I'm just spitballing here, you shouldn't do that and you should pay people fairly for the work that they do. The fact is that when you control for all those other factors in terms of the budget of a film, the opportunities that people have had, their star power, women are still underpaid relative to men. That's just simple as that. There is no argument about that. Women are being given a raw deal in the film industry, as in many others, and are being underpaid compared to their male colleagues, even controlling for all the opportunities you also choose not to give them. It can't keep going on like this. There has to be a reckoning, and Hollywood has to start trying to treat people fairly and trying to give people a chance. So, I don't know. If we're talking about this, I think that will help. If these numbers are out in the open and being analysed, I hope that that will begin to change things because we can't keep denying the evidence of our own eyes, which is that this is basically, fundamentally unfair. So thank you very much to my guests today, Dr. Sofia Izquierdo Sanchez, Susan Kemp and Jessica Regan. You can follow the links in the show notes to find out more about them and their work, and I really recommend that you do. And we've almost come to the end of this episode of Women vs. Hollywood. But before we go, here are Sophia's recommendations for underrated female-led films that you may have missed. And if you want to hear Susan and Jessica's recommendations, check out our episodes on awards and on the studio era. Here's Sophia. Two movies that I can think about now that I really enjoy watching over the past few years uh, are Hidden Figures and uh, Suffragette. Both are known, or at least relatively known, but I think what I like from both of them the most was the uh, the history, right? That they tell that important part that women played in history and the empowerment of women. So you can find a list of all the films recommended by my guests in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to Women vs. Hollywood. I've been your host, Helen O'Hara, and you can find my book, Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, anywhere that books are sold here in the UK. The audiobook is currently available in the US and Canada on Audible, and the book will be released in the US and Canada in December. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a five-star review on your podcast app of choice. It really does help. And to find us on social media, use the hashtag Women vs. Hollywood. 
This podcast is produced by Stripped Media with our executive producers Kobe Omanaka and Ella Watts and our producer Maddie Searle. The podcast artwork is by Steve Laird. Thanks for listening. See you next time. You just heard a Stripped Media production. 